This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. AWS invests in technology and innovations that support ambitious sustainability goals. Learn about AWS sustainability work at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric. Let's face it, data-rich insights are fundamental to measuring ESG impact. Unravel scattered ESG data across your business with Schneider Electric's EcoStructure Resource Advisor. For more information, please visit resourceadvisor.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCowry, this week in New York City. On this week's edition, the IPCC's latest news, the impact of science-based targets, why your next sustainability job may require coding, and can all birds make shoes with no footprint? It's one foot in front of the other, this week on 350. It's March 24th, 2023. Happy spring and welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. We're so glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey is Green Biz's always blossoming editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hey, Joel. It was so great to see you this week. Wonderful. I know. Yeah. We got uh, uh, a sighting on my and turf a, a dinner. For a change. <laughs> yeah, yes. Din- dinner together uh, the other night. Uh, we had... Uh, a meeting of our GreenBiz Executive Network hosted by the uh, big chemical company BASF in Florham Park, New Jersey, which is uh, a relative hop, skip and jump from Midland, Midland Park. And we were so happy that you could join us for, for the dinner that evening. Um, but yeah, did yeah. you have a, a good good time with all the G-Benners? Yeah, it was great to meet some of the newer people. I think there were a couple of people that were brand new, had never been to an in-person meeting before. So it was great and I had um, a wonderful catch up with some old friends as well. Uh, not friends that are old, but friends that I've known for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always, I'd like you to meet one of my oldest, I mean, one of my longest friends. Yeah, 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 longest Friendships. Uh, I don't know how to say yeah. it. Anymore. No, it's was, it was wonderful. Nobody it's always um, that's my like one of my resolutions this year was just to get out and about more. I'm actually ha- have a couple meetings this week, which was just great to you know just talk to people and get ideas for stories, and that's the uh, the best way for me to learn about what's on everyone's minds. I'm all for getting out and about. I'm out this week in, uh, in New York, as I said, and uh, after after a couple days in New Jersey and. It's the series global annual conference. It's been, I think this might be the first post-pandemic one. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Um, uh, and uh, as we're talking on Wednesday, haven't hasn't yet started. It's uh, starting this evening and I'm looking forward to being there. I'm sure I'll have uh, more stuff maybe to talk about next week from series. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's great to be here in New York. And um, But you know what? Let's just get into the Week in Review. And let's start with a story that uh, sort of a eat your vegetable story, but we kind of have to cover it. Uh, the IPCC, the uh, UN uh, 
agency, the Intergovernment, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, mouthful, uh, put out another one of its reports, uh, cataclysmic, uh, apocalyptic, I guess, saying that, you know, that whole 1.5 degree thing, we're kind of getting there and we'll probably be there during the 2030s. And, um, you know, it's it's not shocking, uh, but it's certainly not encouraging and that we're just not making good time uh, going in the right direction. In fact, we seem to be going in the wrong direction from a climate and emissions perspective. So, Heather, what did what did you take away from all this? <laughs> I'm laughing not because it's funny, because it's not funny. I'm laughing because I, I'm kind of weary of these urgent reports because they have been urgent. They, they've been becoming increasingly urgent for the last few reports. And but this is basically the, hey, OK, we officially blew it report. You know, we were already well beyond we're going to massively overshoot both the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming goal and the well below two degrees um, limit the government's agreed to back in 2015. Um, you know, I appreciate this data. I think it's important, um, but I feel like we need to change the narrative. And I feel like the narrative needs to be really focused on like the subhead of this story, which is we have the solutions. We need to get them out there. We need to scale them. And, um, you know, as a journalist, it's I feel like it's our my responsibility and actually our collective responsibility to really change that that drumbeat. I, you know, I, I can't even imagine, you know, we're in this. I can't even imagine the people that are not in the bubble. Like they're probably like, yeah, OK, yeah. Another one of these reports, you know, it's kind of same headline as, you know, so I, I don't know. I'm feeling kind of cynical about it. Um, I really, um, it's frightening, very frightening as a human being, <laughs> even more frightening for me to, when I think about my niece and nieces and niece, niece and nephews, um, you know, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I really just feel like as a, as a, as a collective, as the people that know the science, we need to start focusing on how the science can help. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can focus on the sunnier part of this, which basically says that it's we <laughs> have all the technologies and there's plenty of money out there. Mm -hmm. uh, what um, is implicit, if not explicit in this, is that uh, we just don't have the political will to make the massive uh, investments mm -hmm. that, that it's going to take. And yeah, you're, you're right about the narrative that, you know, there is a, uh, a happier version of the narrative than not that, uh, you know, we're, we're going to face massive systemic failures and all of that. But it's that we actually have the potential to have a healthier, uh, abundant and, uh, and, and safer lives, safer from the, the ravages of a changing climate. Uh, if we take the time and make the investments to do these things, um, you know, so... It's so trite to talk about moonshots, uh, and you know the whole idea of a moonshot was that we have a limited time to make up to do a big, uh, you know, big hairy audacious goal. Um, and the big hairy audacious goal back then was putting uh, a human on uh, a, another celestial body, in this case the moon. Um, now they're talking about Mars, but the big goal here is how do we save the planet and how do we save ourselves? Really, the planet is not going away, but. Uh, it's not looking pretty. So, you know, how do we change that narrative so that uh, like if we can, if we really can 
do all of the things that that are, are promised in terms of abundance, in terms of healthier, in terms of a more efficient, in terms of more equitable solutions. Why wouldn't we do that? And I think that's the mm-hmm. story that nobody's really telling. Yeah, and I think part of the reason people aren't telling it is because it's not one of these big, massive headlines. It's it's so many small actions. Um, I know I know we talk about the fact that we can't have incremental. Like that, that's not going to save us. But but it, it, we do actually need. It's all of the above, right? We do need it. We do need that. We also need um, larger things. So it's the small things and the big things. Well, change is incremental, but goals need to be uh, need to be significant and yeah. and, and audacious. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's I think one of the big differences here between the the potential and the reality is that yeah, they, nobody goes from zero to sixty without going through the other fifty nine steps along the way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And and we need yeah. to uh, we need to to do those incremental things, but we need to do it quickly and with a, with 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 big goals. So I don't know. I just say we're gonna nothing we can really talk about here. That's that's except for the fact that yet another report says we are uh, in a bad state, um, and we need to make significant changes yesterday. Um, and the good news is that those changes are changes that will be good for your people as well as the planet. So uh, let's move on to the field of sustainability, the profession of sustainability inside companies. And um, I thought this was really interesting uh, for a piece from uh, Tannis, uh, is it uh, Thorlaxen or Thorlaxen, uh, the director of sustainability at Driscoll's. Driscoll's is uh, specializes in in berries uh, in, in California and, and maybe elsewhere. One of the largest producers of berries, if you'll see them in uh, a lot of stores, the Driscoll's brand. And this is part of our higher learning uh, series around the the job market. And and the, her piece is titled yeah, "You're Going to Need Coding." in your sustainability career. Uh, and this is, uh, and I think this goes hand in hand with another piece we ran last week from from our own uh, uh, Nico McCrossin, our ESG analyst who said, uh, is sustainability becoming all about accounting? Um, yeah, I mean, the answer is no, but accounting is a big part of this. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, that, that it is a big piece of it. It's just not all about accounting. Um, but uh, the the coding piece, the computer coding uh, piece, I think is is significant. Uh, did you ever do coding, Heather? I have coded, actually. I believe it or not, Pascal and C, and I'll have a little bit of coding. I mean, that comes from my background covering enterprise software, yeah. and this I, this this story speaks to me <laughs> uh, because. Um, it reminds, I mean, I, and I've said this before, what we're experiencing right now with the sustainability data and platforms movement is sort of akin to like the early days of the Excel spreadsheet or Lotus one, two, three, for those of you who remember that, um, you know, even just like word processors. I mean, we have such rudimentary tools for our, to support this profession. And we are moving to a place where it's getting much more sophisticated. And this particular piece is is really like I, I think Tanis really actually does love coding as, and, and is into data analytics and has probably gone farther than than the average human um, that that's on a sustainability team to do this. But the point is very valid, which is that we need these these scripts and these. Um, reports and these databases that we can call upon on a daily basis. We cannot live with these 
once a year kind of data scrambles where you're trying to get little figures, this figures from here and figures from there. And, you know, we, we need the, we need to be able to distill data more frequently and, um, and uh, more autom in an autom less manually, right? Like, so in a more automated fashion. So I love this story because I do feel like this is where we do need to move. And that's why you hear companies like Microsoft and Salesforce and SAP increasingly talking about how they're changing their systems to, to accommodate. Yeah, I guess the thing I don't understand here, and I'm not a coder. I mean, I did some, uh, this is <laughs> slaffable, mm -hmm. some punch card kinds of things back in college, but that was uh, pre, well, it was pre almost everything except abacuses, but um, it was, um, <laughs> Uh, there's there's so many software packages out there, or or account, or you know SaaS, uh, sustain, uh, the software as a service. Software as a uh, service. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, that are making specifically built for this purpose to set up how do you keep track of of, of carbon emissions and so many other things, and and how do you report those out and roll those up in a number of ways. In fact, there's now a tech stack you could uh, make, which just shows that how a lot of different technologies fit together. At the, uh, as GreenBiz23 ended uh, back in February, there was uh, another event that, that happened for uh, Data Moran and Persephone and a few other companies came together to, to showcase the tech stack uh, right right, right on our, our property there in Scottsdale. Um, and it was pretty interesting. Um, and so I guess I just don't know, aren't these counting packages uh, and tracking pack packages making it easier so that Nobody actually has to learn coding. I, this is where I guess I'm just too too old for some of this. Well, I mean, coding is such a broad term. I think it, I think it, you have to be able to tell it what to find, right? And so that, in a sense, is a coding. So if you're gonna if you're going to if you have the the knowledge that looking at this particular data, like this little data, this particular data set. And in fact, I think uh, one of the examples Tanis uses is fuel. Like if you go if you can write a a script kind of like a rule for your you know like what you would use in your email you know where you you're calling upon these databases to go find this information um because you know they're they're the and the calls if you will the the requests would go towards systems of record for things like you know expenses and where you're procuring your energy and where you, i mean like all of the different systems of records within a company so the the, you know, I think that's what what we're talking about. And then the other thing is is um, some automation of how they're visualized, and that goes back to the what we were just talking about a moment ago, which is, you know, show people what's possible, show people with visuals. You know, so many people you have to see, you have to see this stuff visualized. I mean, it, <laughs> think about it, like Celsius. Do you think Americans really kind of grasp the Celsius like magnitude of a Celsius? temperature change you know no so like that even in itself is is not telling the american public anything we need to you know so anyway that, i think coding in this sense just means telling this these systems what to go find yeah i mean she writes coding allows for repeatable and scalable solutions which we need as database databases get bigger and reporting becomes more frequent for example if you can develop an elegant coding script that pulls all of your fuel use data, sort of to your point, Heather, then you can run it each time you need to analyze the data, whether that be daily or yearly, without repeating a lot of work. So I get that. I mean, the, the, and the key question here for me, 
as a as, as and you or storytellers is how does that data become or facilitate the telling of stories? I don't mean once upon a time, happily ever after kind of stories. I'm talking about the stories that need to be told internally and to other key stakeholders about where a company is at any given moment. So that's a key piece of this. But I want to turn, speaking of stories, to a story that you did, Heather, on uh, a terrific company called Allbirds, um, an Allbirds shoe with no footprint. Um, and, and speaking of, they have uh, their own moonshot. So do tell. This is your piece. I'd uh, love, love to hear what you found out. Yeah. So great company. Uh, and what, one of the things I really love about this company is that whatever they learn, they share. <laughs> They, they figure out how to, okay, we have this new material here, people use it. Here's how we did it. Here's how, you know, they are so open because they feel like just, they need, they want to, first of all, they want more demand for some of those materials because it will help them in the future for their prices, for their, their costs and so forth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So what's going on is Allbirds has, um, as many companies do, set out for itself, you know, how do we make a product? How do we make, in this case, a shoe, a running shoe that really and truly has no carbon footprint? Like, we're not just using carbon credits to make that claim. It's not a carbon neutral shoe. Um, it's not a, you know, something that we've just managed to fudge the math. Now, they are using some creative math here, as I'll, I'll get into in a moment. But what they what they've got is is this thing called Moonshot. It is a sneaker. It's not actually I haven't actually physically seen it yet. It won't won't be out on the runways until June, but it builds on the work that um, Allbirds did with Adidas earlier on a, a product called Adi Zero, where the the two of them set out to make a shoe that had a uh, a pair of shoes that had a footprint of less than two kilograms per hmm. pair. And how does that um, compare to a typical shoe? How many kilograms are we so talking So the industry average for running shoes is 14 kilograms, right? So this is a very ambitious goal. Uh, and by the way, t uh, Allbirds is, is um, 10. So Allbirds already had a really, and that's sort of across their portfolio. So the two of them, a few years back, went out, shot for two, didn't make it. They got to 2.94. Um, they, they sold the shoe. It was kind of commercially available. It wasn't like one of these like, massively huge runs, but it was commercially available. And actually, you can still buy it on the uh, Adidas website. Um, but Alberts was like, hey, okay, okay, what, where can we go from here? So they uh, got together internally and focused on a, um, on trying to be beat that number. And so what, uh, what they've come up with on paper, if you were just to take all of the 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 numbers is a, is a footprint of 2 but they also spent they've spent so much time on 2 kilograms that is they spent so much time on sourcing the wool uh, for this from a particular farm in New Zealand that the emissions the negative emissions of, of you if you will of that farm allow it to make a claim of 0 yeah. Um, so the wool, the wool is that most of the shoes are made. The body of the shoe, the top of the yes, shoe, I guess, the is upper, made. The, made yeah. Upper is made from from wool. And yeah. 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 So what they did is they basically really focused on. What I liked about this was they it was really focused on the materials. So the wool, the wool comes from this this farm that has using solar and wind energy. They're reforesting their property. They're using regenerative ag agriculture. They have had their own 
footprint verified. So they're verified, they're verified to be having negative emissions on their farm, um, or at least, you know, zero, if you will. Uh, the thing that, that's all birds has already outsourced is a, a product called sweet foam. It's a sugar bait, uh, sugar cane based material that they use for their soles. And they've gone farther with that material. It's now called super light and it's got like 80% bio content. Like they, they were able to change the processes, less fillers and so forth. So that boom, reduced the emissions associated with that. They took the eyelets and made them out of a, a material from mango meth materials, which is using methane to create polymers. So a, another small material in this shoe, but that basically like every little piece of this shoe, something in the materials has been tweaked to, to take out the emissions. The, um, actually they're even vacuum packing. <laughs> so here's, I'm not really sure how I can envision them transporting this, but they're going to take the shoes instead of putting them in a box, like you would normally see them, they're going to basically vacuum pack them in a film made of, again, a sugarcane derived polyethylene. Mm. Wow. So, so, yeah, all these little pieces. Yeah, well, lots of pieces, and it's impressive. And 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 Hana Kajimura, uh, the head of sustainability, who you interviewed for this piece, is is a terrific one of the up and coming uh, sustainability professionals. We've had her on stage, I think, at Green Biz Twenty Two. Uh, not to you know be Debbie Downer here. I mean, I love everything you're talking about. I think it's the the kinds of goals they've set. The one thing that bugs me, and I I, I had to stop. Uh, buying Allbirds, to be honest, um, which is because, and, and I've talked with Hannah about this, um, it, you can't, uh, they, they wear out and you can't resold them. You have to throw them away, basically, mm -hmm, give them away. Mm -hmm. And the, the, and you, you referenced this uh, uh, yep. towards the end of the piece, that the one thing that isn't being addressed in this uh, shoe called Moonshot is circularity, uh, what happens at the end of, the, of its of its first life on someone's feet. Um, that's, 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 you know, that's a challenge. I mean, can you, and you talk, you talk about the fact that, well, it, it, it can't be a single material that would make it easy to recycle, but you can make the sole out of a different material and, and still have it being able to be separated from the shoe so that you can replace it. The shoes, and I had two or three pairs of, of all birds actually, and uh, the, the uppers were great, but the, the soles wore out as soles do. So I just hope and particularly from a consumer experience, because consumers aren't going to generally, at least 98% of them aren't going to be thinking about grams of, of uh, or kilograms of, of CO2 equivalent <laughs> per pair of shoes. It's not a thing that you do when you buy shoes. Um, uh, yeah. They, but they are going to think about, you know, throwing these things away because you can't fix them. And so I love, as I said, everything they're doing. I just want to see that uh, because... If yeah, you really want to get consumers engaged, you have to make their experience, which is, again, not about kilograms, but about wear and tear and, and recyclability and circularity, uh, that has to be realized. So I'm hoping that that becomes uh, the next story you write about Allbirds is going to be that one. I hope so, too. two years, the WineRed Group, a sustainability recruiter, surveys the field of chief sustainability officers to produce a report focusing on the state of the profession and some of the trends we're seeing. Their latest report is just out and I had a chance to write about it recently. 
I spoke with Ellen Weinreb about the report and wanted to share an excerpt of our conversation. I started out by asking her about a term she used in the report about the need for CSOs to become corporate chameleons. I wondered what it meant to be a corporate chameleon in this context. Here's what she had to say. Well, in general, corporate chameleons are ones that can translate complicated information into the language and the behaviors of the stakeholders with whom they're discussing, talking to, or influencing. And this role is such a heavy influencing role. The the corporate chameleon isn't new. I mean, that's not a new finding from that's been around for the from the CSOs from early, early days. Um, but I'd say that one thing that the CSO, all these CSOs do is they take what's going on in the world and they translate it into ways that can be effective and and um, valuable for their companies so that they understand their company's relationship to society and planet um, and, and their impact on society and the planet. So when it comes to the corporate chameleon, the there's just continually more and more things being thrown at these CSOs just as just as what's going on in this volatile world. I mean, you've got the SVB crisis, the banking crisis, uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, uh, just as we started our conversation, we were talking about the pandemic. You know, all of these things cross the CSO's desk. And even though they might not be exactly related, I mean, like climate change and and uh, the Paris Agreement or Davos World Economics Forum, a lot of those are very directly related to the CSO's job. There's a lot of other society pressures that hit the CSO's desk and their role as corporate chameleons is to interpret them in ways that will help place that company um, in a in a valuable um, purview or um, there's this this way of placing that company in a way where they understand their relationship to society and the planet. Yeah. Well, there's certainly been a lot in the past couple of years and you named some, but there's, you know, there's been this whole supply chain bottlenecks and, and gas prices and natural gas shortages. And of course, uh, uh, the pandemic and, and, and so many other things. Uh, uh, do you think CSOs are, are, are keeping up with all that's going on? Uh, it seems like that's a, a lot to ask. Yeah, that, I mean, one of the one of the other competencies of these CSOs is that they're incredibly resilient, and so yes, they they take whatever is thrown their way, and they'll be able to handle um, what what is thrown their way in the future. And we can assume it's going to be a vo- volatile, right? <laughs> Yeah, because that's what the world is like. Uh, yeah. how, how is all this uh, affecting the, the skill sets that uh, an effective CSO needs to uh, to do the job? Well, right. We've looked at the skills that are required for the CSO. I mean, in general, they're looking for these. There's influencing without authority. There's the corporate chameleon, which we talked about, and also, and and this was part of the survey. We asked the CSOs to identify what top skills were required for the role. And in addition to corporate chameleon, there's also influencing without authority. I think that comes up all the time, and then also really understanding strategy and vision. One of the other findings is that they're taking 
what used to be 12 years ago would be the sustainability strategy. And now they're aligning that strategy more to the corporate strategy. So again, integrating sustainability more into the company at large. So when you do your next study in, I guess, 2025, you already mentioned um, uh, racial diversity, perhaps uh, being one of the the emerging trends or growing trends. What else do you think will be uh, the story? Well, I'm always... I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. I'm waiting for like just with peak oil. There's this question of like peak CSOs. I'm I'm wondering like at what point will the report say, well, actually the number didn't go up because we're looking at the number of CSOs each year that are identifying as naming a CSO for the first for the, the companies that are identifying CSOs for the first time. And so, and we're at about 40. And I wonder at what point are we reaching peak CSO? And I think we might be about there because there's these companies, first of all, let's just recognize this report is looking very specifically at this title. There's a lot of amazing companies that have incredible resources and are doing great work, but they call their head of sustainability something else. So you've got companies like Amazon, Apple, Nike, big brands, Hewlett Packard uh, that are, devoting a lot of resources to sustainability and they're not newcomers. So if we're looking in our research, looking at who are the newcomers, I wonder, you know, who are the newcomers down the pike? I think infrastructure, like some other industries like infrastructure and utilities, private companies, smaller companies certainly could be entering like developing or not naming a CSO for the first time. Um, So that's probably what I see down the pike yet. Our research wouldn't necessarily cover that if they're not U.S. publicly treated. So I I think that's that's something that we want to look out for going forward. So putting a bow on this, are you feeling more optimistic, uh, less optimistic or as optimistic as ever about this this particular field and profession? What's pleasing to me is to see how this role has gained in influence over the 12 years that we've been doing the research. And uh, these, yeah, these these CSOs are our friends, their clients, and um, and it's just great to see that their position continues to rise. You can download the report at winerebgroup.com and we'll link to it in the show notes for this week's episode. Senior Editor and Carbon Reporter at GreenBiz. The Science-Based Targets Initiative is a nonprofit trying to spur action from private companies on carbon emissions. It encourages companies to set targets and create roadmaps to decrease their emissions in line with a 1.5 degrees of warming future. The organization is a partnership between CDP, the United Nations Global Compact, World Resources Institute, and the World Wildlife Fund for Nature. It has created best practices for reductions by sector, from land and agriculture to financial institutions, and is currently working on many others, including aviation and oil and gas. The organization created a new role in January, Chief Impact Officer, and hired Maria Outers, previously the Vice President of Sustainability and Corporate Responsibility at Sodexo, to fill it. I sat down with Maria to chat about her new role at SBTI and SBTI's plans for the future. Thanks for joining us, Maria. 
Hi, Jesse. Thank you for having me and having SPTI. So has there ever been a chief impact officer at SPTI before? No, it's a brand new role that was created this year as I took it over in January. So it's only a few weeks or months now. Uh, and it was really to recognize the growth that SBTI has been pursuing since, let's say, eight, nine years where the initiative was born. And that became truly today a leading standard setter in terms of uh, helping companies and financial institutions to set their standards and their goals in terms of carbon reduction. So new, brand new role. Yeah, I feel like a lot of companies have sort of started having these sort of like impact roles at different companies. And I'm sort of interested, like, what does this bring to SBTI that you didn't, that they didn't have before? Or where to hope, what do you hope to bring? I think it recognizes, Jesse, the um, the whole mission of SBTI being we are a non-for-profit and we are on a mission to get companies and financial institutions to do their part of decarbonization for us to stay within the 1.5 degree. And so we really want to scale to have as many, and I'll come to the numbers, as many corporations and financial institutions to engage into carbon reduction pathways. So we care about the number of companies, the coverage we have, and today we have more than three gigatons of those companies that have committed to reductions. And, and the outcomes will be about how much they are reducing so that we stay within the 1.5 boundary. So we care about outcomes and outputs of number of companies and their reduction. And I sense this is what the team within SBTI is doing to reach to more and more companies and more and more financial institutions to get them to adopt this science-based approach. So I would say that a lot of other corporations are also creating those kinds of roles because they realize that beyond just the financial contribution they can have, they have a much larger impact and that they need a little bit of structured approach to understand exactly what is the impact they have and how can they make it a better impact. I think this is what everyone is trying to look for today. Yeah, and so how does having sort of an impact role at a company, you know, shouldn't all the roles at a company be impactful or be like striving towards impact? And how would a company that has, you know, impact, uh, an impact role that is working on integrating the SBTI targets, how would they sort of mobilize all the different departments to that goal and, and not just maybe the impact team or the sustainability team? Yeah, very fair question. And Jesse, uh, until a few months back, I was a chief sustainability officer in another large multinational company. And you're absolutely right. The whole game today is to engage with the chief purchasing officer uh, and the procurement and supply chain is critical. The finance team is critical. So today I see this sustainability roles in corporations very central they need to be helped by organizations like sbti to understand and 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 better yeah understand what science is now telling us about what is necessary but then they need to engage with all the company from hr from supply management from marketing from sales so that they drive the transformation that is required internally do you have any advice from your your time at that other company on how if you're like, you know, the chief sustainability officer or the chief impact officer to to make sure that your all your employees understand what an SBTI target is and how their specific role can uh, help, you know, meet it? I would say the way I've done it was very clearly on very early on, sorry, uh, back in uh 
2019 to have an SBTI target that was clear and that was detailed and 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 yeah with the level of detail so that the corporation can understand what are the drivers to achieve in scope one scope two and scope three the reductions which are necessary so having a robust plan with targets and then communicate it very thoroughly internally is one big piece of advice i would give probably linking incentives and remuneration of some of the key positions to those targets is also a key enabler. And then let's face it, I think it's necessary. And then to track progress uh, against those because it has been very tricky over the last two, three years with COVID impacts and the businesses that have suffered a lot. Um, but just go back to what have we committed? What are we achieving? Why are we achieving or not achieving, because I also understand that it can be very tricky sometimes to uh, navigate all those kind of different requests, expectations and situations in the market. So I would say a lot of communication and education internally is needed. And I, I've seen a lot of training programs around environmental sustainability being developed in companies. And I think this helps tremendously people becoming more aware and then more empowered to work. Yeah, I love that linking to the kind of the key roles idea because I feel like I always talk to people and they want, you know, like, oh, it's always like, you know, set clear expectations and communicate. And all I think about is my time in the tech world and how many all hands meetings I went to and just like zoned out and didn't pay attention. So I totally think that those, you know, really having it be those key leaders and linking that is really important. But, you know, we're, we're inching closer and closer to 2030. What can and should SBTI doing, be doing to monitor the emissions trajectories of these companies with science-based targets? And, and what are you guys planning for sort of keeping these companies honest? Okay, Jesse, many, many things I would say. Um, there is, uh, first of all, there is an obligation today when you commit to SBTI to be reporting every year against your uh, your reductions or or no reductions but about your emissions this is really something that we're asking for we know it's not perfect today and there are many reports that show that maybe three quarters of the companies do it but not everyone does it so there is a lot that will be insisting on reinforcing the need to uh, really be uh, transparent in their emissions. So that's very important. I think another thing that SBTI is doing is also to try to upgrade some of the companies, if I may use this word, that used to be only committed to kind of a, uh, a near-term target to move to a net zero target. And so having a little bit more of the transformative transformations in the corporations is something that we're also pushing the companies and educating a lot about this net zero framework that was only released two years ago and needs a lot of pedagogy and explanations to corporations so that they understand what they can be doing. And uh, our internal teams are working internally to make sure that we also clarify some of the guidance for companies to better monitor their progress against what um, their targets were. And so we know that uh, we can be better in terms of expliciting what good looks like. And this is what the teams are working on for this 2023 year. And what if a company has a science-based commitment and then like fails it or fails to track back to it? What, what happens? on the internal side for SBTI? So to be honest, again, we'll be insisting and reaching um, to those companies to clearly 
uh, well, deliver on what they have committed. Let me just share with you that this year we've started implementing a new compliance policy where companies, they had two years between the moment they set uh, their commitment uh, to the moment where they really submit their targets. And, and we weren't enforcing enough this kind of two-year period. And now we've made it very clear and we've dropped and will be taking out from our list of committed companies, companies that did not deliver on this two-year timeframe. So this took us a, some time to get to that position. And again, we're more and more being explicit about the standards. We are still to be releasing a lot of new standards this year because we know that on chemicals, on steel, there is a lot of guidance that is not robust or exhaustive enough so we'll be putting a little bit of additional pressure in some specific sectors where action is needed and then we'll be gradually turning more and more to those who are not delivering on the transparency they need in terms of their reduction pathways and so when a company let's say this happens and you know they didn't meet their target or they didn't come up with the thing within the two years and you had to drop them was it you know, was it kind of just like a silent little thing or was it something that you were kind of you pushed out and said, hey, like these companies are not making commitments on their goals, like we're going to publicize this? Yes, to be honest, Jesse, that's something new that will be happening this year that will be somehow making it visible. Again, we are not going to make a press release of, uh, of anything, but if you go to our website and we try to put everything in our SBTI website from all the new insights, policies, guidance we're issuing, but also the kind of uh, leaders board of all the companies which are committed to what are they committed, uh, by when did they submit their targets, what kind of targets have they submitted, and if they're not delivering on it, it will be flagged or marked as such. Got it. And what do you see as SBTI's goals and responsibilities in a post-2030 world? What do you hope that the company is doing then or the organization? To be honest, I would love to see that uh, adopting science-based targets for company became the norm. So what is today a nice a small wave becomes the new norm. Um, I would like to see all the companies having adopted the net zero or by at the latest 2050 uh, long-term targets, which is again also a big thing for us still to, to see happening. So having more and more companies on their net zero journey for a time frame before 2050. And then I would say, um, sorry for the joke, but to say that sometime SBTI is not needed anymore because it became the new ways of doing the carbon accounting and the carbon trajectory plans as in finance. It took many years to have uh, all those financial standards being dis established. But one day, uh, I hope it will become mainstream and maybe SBTI is not needed anymore. That would be a nice dream. Well, that I, I can't say that your company, that your organization might be loved to hear that, but I think the planet would love it, love it if SPI didn't need to exist anymore. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. And I really hope that SBTI um, and all the companies commit on their goals and we get to see some really awesome progress in the next couple of years. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jesse. And if I may, let me thank you as well, the 4,400 companies that have already signed and adopted SBTI, which I think it's a very nice success, but we want to reach more. We're on a mission to achieve 10,000 by 2025.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments and your questions and tips. Just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather will be off next week, but I'll be here with uh, my colleague, Nathra Rajendran, uh, for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services, where a commitment to sustainability means delivering innovative solutions every day. Learn how AWS is accelerating change at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. And this episode is sponsored by Schneider Electric. Alleviate frustrations in ESD data management and reporting with Resource Advisor, insights for impact. For more information, please visit resourceadvisor.com.